Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of The Recovery and this week I'm joined by the most amazing Bryony Gordon. Hi Bryony. Hi Tony, how are you? <laughs> so if people aren't familiar with you, uh, you're, you, you're a journalist, you are uh, a mental health advocate, there's so many things and so many, I was reading your bio because I wanted to know more about you and it was just like, uh, it was so interesting reading. Because I didn't know that you were a part of that 3 a.m. girls in the, in, oh. in the gossip columns. And I used to love that page in the sun. You know, that was like, was it the mirror or the sun? It was the, the mirror. mirror. Yeah, that the mirror. was a long time ago. I'm Very long time ago. But you know what? It was kind of a, one of those things that I inspired to be in. I'd be like, I really want to be in there. You know what I mean? It was like so insane. It was like a gossip column. But it was, it was such a good gossip column. Well, you it know, was like... It was sort of my dream job, but the problem was, was that I was only 21 and I had a very abusive boyfriend at the time. And also like, I wanted to be out partying. I didn't want to be out working, do you know what I mean? And it wasn't, I quit after three months. I was like, I can't do this. This is, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't for me. God, that's, I forget that I did that. Mm, but you know, it's, we, it's funny how we create these jobs so that we can go out partying. And it's like, you know, the ideal fit, ideal job is like, oh my God, I, I, I found a job that I can party with. And it's insane, and do you know what I mean? And then what happens is we burn out really quickly because the two should never have gone together in the first place. So let's, let's start at the beginning for you. Cause you know, the recovery is not only about addiction, it's about mental health. It's about recovering from everything. So, you know, from, from Crohn's disease to menopause, to drug addiction, alcohol addiction, uh, and, for you, a lot of those things cross over. So I'd like to talk to you about from the very beginning. Tell me your story. Wow, gosh. Well, I was gonna say, I feel like I'm in recovery from life. Like, I feel <laughs> like we're all born, um, uh, like, and, and we kind of pick up all of these problems throughout our childhood and our adolescence yeah. and, our, and our early adulthood. And then we, if we're lucky, get to a stage where we're like, I need to recover from having been born, basically, which is, wow. Yeah, when I was about nine or ten, I um, I developed what I now know is obsessive compulsive disorder. But back then, it being the like late eighties, early nineties, like there was just no conversation at all about any of that stuff. So what was that? What how, what 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 would you do? So basically, I became terrified. I don't know if you remember. I'm sure you do remember at the time. Uh, it's really interesting with OCD. So it tends, we hear so much about OCD and whenever I say to someone, oh, I have, I've had, I, I have OCD, they go, oh, yeah, me too. You should see my sock drawer. And I'm like, I don't have a fucking sock drawer. Like I can show you my, look, that's my floor drawer. And I remember when I met my husband, he's like, God, I wish you had the good type of OCD. And of course there is no good type of OCD. But at first when I was very young, I had, I was, um, at the time, there was a big public health campaign uh, for, uh, about AIDS. Yeah, um, of course, it, it, it changed. It changed a lot of people's lives. That campaign because it put the fear of God into people. It was. It was, it was absolutely uh, so thoughtless and so heartless. Oh, it was an awful, awful campaign. With stigmatizing. Oh my yeah. God! And John Hurt going, yeah. "Don't yeah. die of ignorance." Yeah, it was absolutely and, terrible, terrifying. And, and as a night, but my community at that time. We'd already lost so many people. And then what that did was that alienated us even more because it became the gay disease uh, and you should not go near gays because you will get this. And it was just like, it was just, yeah, it was, it was, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. But anyway. Well, I, I, see, this is when I, I feel like bad talking about, because I was nine years old. I mean, I hadn't like kissed anyone, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Alone, like my, and my drug, my drug habit was at least sort of 10 years off. And then, you know, it was like, <laughs> there was no, there was no, but it terrified me as a child, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I uh, I became convinced that I I would have, oh, it wasn't just AIDS, it was sort of like an illness. Like I, yeah. I just thought that going outside, I was gonna breathe in something or I was gonna pick up germs and I was gonna then infect my family. And I would like wash my hands until they bled and I would have to hide my toothbrush under my pillow because I was scared I was going to give something to my family. And I had to say phrases over and over again to keep people alive. So it kind of started with that, but it sort of broadened out into like 
And then when I was about 16, 17, it became, I, it, it sort of morphed a bit more into that responsibility OCD, where I became convinced that I, I, I was just terrified that everyone around me was going to die. And I, I, so I would say phrases to keep them alive. I'd be like, I'd rather I died than my brother. I had a much younger brother. And, um, and then I became convinced that I might kill someone or hurt some, or hurt my brother. And um, I went around basically uh, believing that I had like, I was a serial killing paedophile essentially who had blanked everything out in horror. So at that time, was no one picking up on this stuff? Was anyone trying to help you? Was there anyone like saying, okay, Bryony, this what's going on for you? I mean- I think that it was like, I don't know, like as a teenager, I think it, it looked just like a moody, surly adolescent locking herself in her room. Um, yeah. I did eventually, it was really funny or weird because when I was about 17, this film came out called As Good As It Gets. Mm -hmm. Jack Nicholson played someone with OCD, although he sort of played it for laughs and he won an Oscar for it, but it was really weird because there was a piece in The Guardian, I think at the time, and I'd sort of seen it lying on the kitchen table. And I think my mum may have left it out. And it was all about the different types of OCD and it spoke about this type called Puro in which, and I'll try and describe it now because the way I describe OCD is that, because it manifests itself in loads of different ways. It's like your brain refuses to acknowledge what your eye can see. So that the candles, that this candle is off. I might have to take a picture of it 10 times to make sure that I, you know, or that the oven's off or that, that my hands are clean or, you know, and, but then there's this type called Puro, which is about thoughts. So all of us have something between 7,000 and 12,000 thoughts a day or something, right? Mm -hmm. We are not all of our thoughts. We would go absolutely bonkers if we paid attention to all of them, okay? Yeah, we all, exactly. We all have intrusive thoughts. So I describe it like, if you ever been handed someone's new baby and be like, what if I just drop the baby on the floor or, you know? Yeah. And most of us can logically go, oh, this is just my brain being a bit random. Like yeah. I'm not actually a baby killer, you know, or a baby dropper. And we just kind of let it go. Whereas someone with pure O will be so distressed by the thoughts that they will um, that they will ruminate and obsess over them to check they are not their thoughts. And so that's where it came in with me. And by the time I was about 17 or 18, there was a huge sort of, um, that, you know, it moved from AIDS to, I think there was a, you know, it was a really tragic case of a girl who was murdered by a paedophile and it was, and he was a re registered and it was, you know, there were like, people were like having riots on the street and like, uh, and, and going and like, um, like protesting against pediatricians, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I remember, yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. Anyway, so, so to put it, anyway, I thought that I was a serial killing paedophile. Now, obviously Tony, people don't- Sorry, I've got a laugh. It's insane, isn't it? You know, it's absolutely insane. I just want to, you know, for me, right, I always, always, always tell people, oh, I've got OCD, because I can't go to bed if there's a knife in the sink, or if I come home and someone's moved a bit of furniture, or something's out of place, I will sit and it will do my nothing. But that's not OCD, that's just my, the way I am. But I always say, oh, I've got OCD because I don't like mess and I don't like thinking, but I come from mess and I come from chaos. And I kind of think that the reason why I use OCD is such an easy way is just, it's self-diagnosing basically, you know, I'm, you know, it's like, but to the extremes that you're talking about, you know, it, it it doesn't come it doesn't compare and I, I won't be using that as a term anymore. Well, it's like, I mean, listen, we can't get like life is no life. You know, it's kind of just one of those things, you know, that I use so flippantly. Oh, I've got OCD, you know. Oh, but it made it really hard. Like I think certainly now I don't really care about it anymore because I'm like, I life's too short. I can't like I can't sit around and get upset that someone uses a chat anyway. But certainly. You know that wasn't a type of OCD that people would speak about publicly yeah. and you know guess what because I was I mean I was convinced and then you know for me it was like the only way the only kind of coping mechanism I developed was was alcohol and drugs because it was like so torturous to go through each day worrying about maybe what I'd done the night before or whatever 
that I just had to kind of like drink it and drink alcohol it. And, and drugs block it out did it or what type of drugs were you taking because you know for me if you took a stimulant my mind would work hard over well, time and I would do my own nighting even more so I guess alcohol was like my primary and I I um it just enabled me to like I, I just you know not think about that thing and have fun and what or have fun mm. You know, and then in my 20s, I discovered cocaine. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. My Siri. Siri, Siri, Siri doesn't like the word cocaine. I'm sorry. I'm, taking... so I'm ordering now. It's like on order. Hey, Siri, order my cocaine. Yes, I'm ordering now. She just picks up on the word. Carry on. Well, oh, oh, yeah. And then, oh, so alcohol, yeah. But I was like... I was like a full down drunk from the beginning. Like yeah. when people sort of said to me later on when I decided to get sober, they're like, why did you decide to get sober? I, you know, when was the moment that you realized you had to get sober? I'm like, oh my God, it was probably from the first time I had a drink. <laughs> so I remember like being 13 and like 14 and drinking. Go straight into blackout with it. Like drinking a liter of vodka and vomiting, obviously, because yeah. you know, hello. But that didn't put me off. I was out doing right. it again the next weekend. But cocaine, when I discovered that, I was like, I could carry on drinking for as long as I wanted. Yeah, that was it for me as well. It's the same thing. It was an extension, you know, that was one of the main reasons I first started taking it. it was, friends of mine would say, have cocaine, it will, you will stop, get, stop you getting so paralytically drunk. Mm. Like being paralytically drunk wasn't an alarm in itself. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Let's extend yeah. that. <laughs> Let's extend that by two days. Do you know what I mean? As, yeah, and that's like to, that uncommon sense that we have. It's like that's a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. I've been back for twenty-eight years now. Yeah, and of course, as you say, like the madness of it is that you know we know alcohol is a depressant that masquerades as a relaxant, right? And we also know that cocaine is a stimulant. So of course, were these things doing you know do being that good for my mental health? No, not at all. And what would happen was. I would then wake up or, you know, come to or yeah. still be awake from the night before. And sorry, suddenly it was like, I was worrying about what had happened in that period of time and what had I done and had I blanked something else out. And it was like, I felt myself, because it was like, and then I knew that the only way I was going to get through that anxiety was just to start the cycle off all over again. Yeah. Because I could, rep I could, whatever shame I was feeling at the time, I knew that if I went out and I drank and I drugged, I would get rid of it by, but by replacing it with another shame. But that didn't, I couldn't think about what that shame might be. You know, it was just like the shame I was in at that point was so awful and so difficult to deal with that I just had to get rid of it in any way, even if it meant I would just be drowning in shame the next day. So I was like in this perpetual cycle. And of course, Cocaine, you know, it was interesting. I was uh, I was um, at a twelve step meeting last night, and this, you know, this I was listening to someone who was saying that you know they had a really like strong moral compass, but it was like everything they were doing was completely out of whack with that, and mm -hmm. it was like that with me. I would, I mean, like my behaviour was just the places I'd find myself, you know, and the situation yeah, I'd find myself in, and were just completely, um, they were just adding to the shame, you know? It was like I was drowning in shame. Yeah, I mean, I used to find myself in these most awfulest of awfulest of situations. And, and what I would do was just like, literally just think, oh, well, well, I'm here now, I might as well enjoy it. And like try and make the best of being in hell. Yeah. Like, literally hell. I would like, I would be out with my friends and it would be Sunday morning and I would say, oh, I'm just going to go to the toilet and I would leave through the back door of the club and I would go to these places where no human being should ever go and feel kind of normalised in it. Do you know what I mean? Like being in places where just such debauchery was going on. And I mean like at the lowest level mm. and just felt really at ease with it because... I kind of, my self-worth had gone and yeah. it was those, that, I had to go to those levels to just to feel sane. It was really, really awful. And I would all, and that became my life, you mm. know, for a long time because- A lot of that, like that place of debauchery, like you're talking about like, 
that sort of sexual shame that I found yeah. as, as a woman, like I was, you know, I, and I now look back on it and go, like, just give yourself a break, Bryony. You know, you didn't break any laws. You didn't, you know what I mean? But like, it was, it was the situation of finding, you know, it was things that just weren't, like, I, I would certainly wouldn't have done so. And funnily enough, I'm like, I haven't done any of them since I, you know, for the years I've been sober. But Bryony, how do you get from, you know, that level of OCD and then alcoholism and, and drug, drug use and abuse, where does that take your mind? Well, I mean, looking back now, I was in, you know, there are occasions when I was in a sort of state of drug-induced psychosis. I mean, and I don't use that word lightly. I was, I was convinced the police were coming to get me. I'd done something awful. I was checking um, under beds and cupboards. I don't know what I was looking for. It was just like something was out there to get me. But I also, like a lot of addicts and alcoholics, I was, you know, the thing is, is that I think we have this perception of, of alcoholics and addicts. It, it, they're sort of, we, we, we only see them at their rock bottoms, you know, at their lowest to their lows. And actually the danger of alcoholism and addiction is that it isn't like that, you know. No, or is it like, this is the problem. No. People go, I'm not an alcoholic. And you should, you know, well, no, you're not sitting on a bench drinking cider, you know, yet. Yeah, and, and uh, although a lot of the time, like towards the end, my sofa, you know, we hit, I hit a lot. Like, so we all end up on the park bench, but what I'm saying is the problem with it is, is when you try to tell someone that they have a problem and they're not at that point where they feel, they know it's a problem because six days of the week, it's a problem. But that one day where they think, you know what? I'm not as bad as that one, or I'm not as bad as him and I'm not that. That's when we start to get that false sense of being of like, okay, well, I'm not as bad as that. Do you get what I mean? And then we, so we carry on. I mean, I think that I was, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier about the job that, so I was a, a journalist yeah. and I was, and I was, you know, I was good at acting, you know, and I was, well, not that good. Obviously I'm not an actor. <laughs> I was good at like, what I would do is I would turn the horrible things that happened to me into like a joke and an anecdote. And I was like, this performing <laughs> monkey, do you know what I mean? And, and pretty quickly, I think my, my employers, I, you know, my, the newspaper <clears throat> like, you should be writing a column. This would be really fun to read in like the Sunday supplement. So it was like, okay, this is my job. And I remember when I was about, it was, you know, it was about, but I remember at 31, I met my now husband and yeah. we kind of like, and he, he's not a big party animal. He doesn't take, I mean, he likes a drink, but he's not, you know, he's one of those pain in the asses. He can just have one. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get that. I, I don't either. I got that. Never got that whole, I can go out and have one drink and come home and go to bed. I just don't get that. And I never got, the other thing I really don't get is when you go to, I used to go to around people's houses and they go, oh, does anyone want a line? I've got some Coke left over from like a month ago. And you'd be like, what? what? How can anyone have Coke in their drawer left over from a month ago? I just don't get it. That's not normal. <laughs> I would definitely still, if like, if, if, if someone said to me, oh, guess what, Briley, Tony, they've come up with this medicine and it means you'll only want to drink moderately, so yeah. you only want one or two, would you like to take it? I'd be like, absolutely not, I'm not interested. Like, no, was that was never the point. I don't, I don't get what the point of having alcohol with dinner is. Oh, let's have wine with food. I just, well, food never came into my using. <sighs> Do you know what I mean? It was like, I, mean, I only I drank water. I never drank water for 28 years. And the only reason, I actually thought I didn't need to drink water because Jack Daniels was made with distilled spring water. And I literally believed that that was, I, I drink, I've got enough, I, you know, I'm drinking water, it's in Jack Daniels. That was my logic. And I wasn't, you know, absolutely crazy. I just don't get that whole, oh, oh let's have a nice glass of wine with dinner. Let's just have the bottle and let's blow out dinner. Journey. I I still I find seeing people like drink like that normally so helpful because it's a reminder of why I don't ever want to yeah no. go there. but I thought I remember when I met my husband and I got I, like we'd sort of it none I found myself pregnant quite yeah. quickly and I genuinely thought that pregnancy was going to do for me like what rehab does for everyone else and I was like 
I'm going to become the kind of person who just has a glass of wine at the end of the day with my dinner. Like, I just, it didn't occur to me that this was a problem. Like, I knew it was problematic, but I thought that was just a symptom of circumstance and the fact I was a bit chaotic and a party girl. And I guess it was like, and then after my daughter was born, I... I thought, because I wasn't taking cocaine, it was okay, do you know what I mean? I was drinking and of course you drink, you know, I needed to relax at the end of the day and I had these rules and I was like, you know, don't drink until my daughter goes to bed and I didn't drink every day, I drank every other day. And it was all of that, those rules that I thought meant I was controlling my drinking when in fact it was controlling me. Your OCD, did you think that you could control your drinking with your OCD or your drug taking? And how did, your OCD coming to play around your being pregnant. Did you actually think, oh my God, did it ever get you? Did you have to do those phrases and all of the stuff that you used to do before? Or that, or did the alcohol and everything kind of push that down and suppressed it? I think that my, when I was pregnant, I think I was like, it was interesting because I did, I got referred to like um, serious mental health team at in, in my local NHS trust because of my history of OCD. Yeah. But I'd never like, it was interesting. And I, I, was, I was very mentally unwell when I was pregnant looking back, you know. Um, but I think, I don't know, it was so weird. Like I, it was like, I, by that point, OCD was just me and it was like it didn't occur to me that there was any way I could be free of it I'd sort of become used to living at this level of like anxiety up here and I guess I assumed that having a baby getting married all of that was going to bring it down and weirdly where you know a lot of um women experience OCD for the first time after they've had a baby but for me it was like it was really interesting because I remember my family being like you're nailing this baby thing because I was like, this. I'm having to sterilize shit. Like that was my life. Like from the age of nine, I was doing that, you know. And I guess so. I was drinking, and then, but then it started to come back. And what started to happen was that I was started to worry that I had. When my daughter got a bit older, I started to worry that I might have done something to her. Uh-huh. And then, and that was when I sort of started to realize that this was not something I could do alone. I needed to get proper help. And I'd sort of flirted with help. I'd had CBT, I'd had all of that. That was how my career sort of weirdly went from just being a kind of uh, jobbing, um, you know, feature writer to to what it has is that I wrote about my OCD out of like a desperation because I knew other people had it but I didn't meet anyone else who ever admitted to it and I I needed that sort of like I guess what I now see as fellowship you know yeah and I wrote about it in my column in the telegraph and um like and I you know the serial killing paedophile thing and I thought you know if you have this too please 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 let me know I you know I need to know I'm not mad or that I am mad but I'm not bad and um and it was like incredible the response i got was like it blew my mind and um don't talk about that they, they you know they, they, they there's such shame we come from as addicts or everything that we do 99.9 percent of what we do comes from shame uh, yeah we are we people the way we we treat ourselves uh just you know it it it, it, there's so much shame attached to who we are and what we do and how we do it. No yeah. one discusses that stuff. No one's going to sit down at dinner and say, okay, so I, I, you know, really seriously thought that I, if I didn't say this 68 times a day, I would become a serial killing pedophile. They're not going to say that. And until you bring it to the table and you mention it and you say it out loud, that's where the identification comes and that's where the magic happens. Do you get what I mean? The amount I, of people that you help by just voicing that is, 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 is insane. It was, but you know what I mean. I always, like that was my first experience of like properly, I guess, yeah. Exp- I always remember many, a few years later when I found myself in rehab and I was like, what? And I remember this counselor saying to me, Briny, shame dies when you expose it to the light. And I realized that was actually what I was doing a little bit there. And I look back and I wrote, um, 
a book called Mad Girl, which was all about my OCD. And it it was like, it, it kind of catapulted me into the kind of like author spotlight, went to, you know, did all those things. Number one, people were like, oh my God, you're so, you're so brave for writing about this stuff. And I, and then it was like, as I was right, as I was kind of immersed in the mental health community and, and starting to, and I'd set up this thing called Mental Health Mates, which was where people meet and they go for walks and talks. It's like peer support. Yeah. But at the time I was still drinking and, and, and the drugs were creeping back in. Yeah. in a, and, but I told myself, oh, it's once every three months. It's not a problem, you know? It's not a problem, yeah. But it's becoming increasingly clear to me that it, the way I drank, through meeting like it was really it's funny how the universe works isn't it like how it I remember the first one of the first mums I met after I had my daughter was this amazing woman who is one of my bestest friends and I spoke to her last night and her husband was in um recovery he didn't drink and I was like what the fuck and I remember we became really close and we went on holiday and I remember I'd sit there and I'd be like chatting to her husband being like so you, you genuinely just never, you don't drink anymore. Like what? I was like, it was like, I couldn't stop asking him questions about it. I get it all the time though. All the time, yeah. whenever, because I'm so open about my recovery. People are like, well, you haven't had a drink for 14 years. And then you're like, no. And they're like, do you miss it? And it's like, no. And then suddenly three hours have gone by of them asking questions because it's a gateway. Yeah. The gateway. Yeah, go on. I love this. It's funny how you, like, I was, you know, it was like almost I was like drawing in the the proper components I needed to get well and to yeah. get well from my OCD as well. And um, so, yeah, so I sort of spoke about, I was speaking, I was standing up on stage. I was running marathons to raise money for mental health charities. I was, I, I, I started this podcast called Mad World. <laughs> my first guest was Prince Harry, right? I mean, and I I mean that in itself. So, you know, it, it it's it's so extreme to go from that extreme to this extreme, and try and you know to piece it together to go from like you know saying phrases, drinking and taking loads of drugs, and then having kids, and and the levels of of mental health, and then suddenly you're doing podcasts with Prince Harry as a guest it, it is is kind of remarkable in itself. But it was because I'd spoken out about this type of OCD that he spoke to me. But I was still at the time, like that was April 2017. And I remember doing that podcast and going to Kensington Palace and like my career was like reaching these incredible highs. So again, I was like, I can't be an alcoholic because I'm in Kensington Palace. Hello, yeah. Prince Harry. And like, hello, I just ran a fucking marathon. Sorry for swearing. Uh, and, for, and, and raised £60,000 for Heads Together. I'm like, alcoholics don't do that. No, they do. But they do. <laughs> and they do. And, what, do. and, and I, you're, you're testament to that. I'm testament to that. A lot of people <laughs> you know, we, that's just it. We do. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing what we can achieve while being an alcoholic do you know what I mean and just you know because that when we do it when we're achieving that stuff we're at that level of thinking okay we're more blinkered to what we, who we are than ever before because we, we're achieving we're functioning and when we're functioning alcoholics or functioning drug addicts we're in the real danger zone because we don't have limits it's the most dangerous place to be. I mean, like, God, the delusion. But because everyone was like, Ronnie, we're so proud of you. You're doing so well. And I was like, it was like the higher, the more successful I became, the more dangerous, like the dark, the, the, the alternate. And I knew that the game was almost up for me drinking and partying wise. And it was interesting because I felt like by talking about my OCD and it, it was interesting, the universe was teaching me this, lesson about myself and I look back at it really because people are very binary about mental illness they're like well I don't understand how you could be a mental health advocate talking about OCD and behind the scenes be a raging alcoholic and I'm like well that's that's how mental health works we are all I believe all of us every day wake up and we're like how many levels of denial am I, how many layers of denial am I going to have to get dressed in today to just get through the day you know, and for me, it was like, 
I had to put on this layer of like, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm just a girl that likes to have fun, you know, and I've had to, life has been about like stripping those layers off, you know. Yeah. And when you get into recovery and, and you start seeing like therapy or, you know, whenever you do therapy and recovery, then you, they use the analogy of, you know, it's like an onion. Taking the onion. It really pisses me off, but you know, it's so true, but it's such a cliche one of like, yeah, there's so many layers to the onion and it's like, you know, and every one of them will make you cry and it's like, oh, fuck off. But it's so fucking true because we build up so many layers of faces and, and different values and, and this is who I'm meant to be. This is who I want you to see. This is who I, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's when we start to work on that and, re and taking it off slowly and it's a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight. No, and I think it's really interesting because like, I, it was, what was interesting to me is the shame that is attached to addiction and alcoholism yeah. is that I could stand up on stages and talk about OCD and it making me think I'm a serial killing paedophile, which some people would say is quite out there. You know, it's quite a brave <laughs> thing to do. Look, but, it's quite normal for me. Yeah, no, of course. But, but, but you, I could not stand up and say I'm an alcoholic, like I couldn't confront that reality. I had to go through that reality first. And then it became really clear to me that things were, you know, and in a way I, you know, I don't, I wouldn't be alive in here if I hadn't done that one thing of writing that column about my yeah. OCD. And all of it has led to, each thing has led to another. And it was, um, yeah, so that was April, 2017. And then it very quickly, like that, spring and summer were like I mean I don't know how like they were just horrific and it was the shame the shame the shame I had a, a four-year-old daughter you know I was a mental health campaigner I ran this mental health group I had a best-selling book I was being lauded and I'm like but I am this disgusting human who when you're all when your backs are all turned is like just getting out of it and sometimes finding themselves in situations and I kind of knew, it was like, I don't know about you, but I, I, I knew I had, it was like I had to, I knew the game was up and it was like, I had to drink all the booze in London and I had to take all the drugs. And it was like, I had to destroy myself. Mm. To yeah, I mean, look, you know, for me, change only happened when it got so painful that, I, that I, it, I, it got to the thin line between life and death. And all I ever, and I say this all the time and I'm bored of saying it, but you know, uh, it got to the point where all I wanted to do was die. And I was thinking about my own funeral on a daily basis. And that was all I had to look forward to because I'd exhausted every avenue there was except one. And that was to change. And I didn't know how to change because I built a life out of taking drinking drugs. I built a life out of lying. I built a life out of abusing everything I ever come into contact with. And to change that, you know, my life, and I always say this, my life was fucking shit, but it was my shit and it was my comfort. And that's all I knew. And to change that was never an option because I felt that I'd gone too far and there was no coming back from it. And, you know, um, because, you know, spraying myself orange thinking that people didn't realize I was addicted to crystal meth on a daily basis thinking that I looked healthy because I had great cheekbones I had no teeth and I you know and I thought in my my mental state that I was normal and I you know it it got to those extremes for other people around me couldn't be around me anymore because it was too painful for them to be around me and that's not sad for their for them that's that's how I wanted it you know, I wanted, I didn't want anyone around me that cared because I no longer cared and I couldn't cope with anyone that cared. And, you know, it's, it, it's that point of where you either top yourself, which I try to do on many an occasion, or you, there, there's a, a, the gift of desperation is given to us, which we have that magic light, like the pilot light goes on. And it can be what so, one person can say something to you or you could be in a situation and, and that's when the magic happens and you get this, suddenly you, you think, I don't want to do this anymore. And it's that simple, do you know what I mean? It's that simple, you just think, I can't do this anymore. You know, I, 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 I want to live, I, I, I want to 
just have some form of normality in my life where I even drink water or I go for walks with my friends or, you know, I'm not worrying or wondering what you've got in your pocket that I could have, you know, that was what life was like. And, you know, it, it, all it takes is just that God given moment of change. And, and, and it can be the most simplest of things. And, you know, what was that? What was that for you? Sometimes I totally agree. Like sometimes you have to get close enough to the catastrophe to realize you're worth saving from it. And I totally agree. Like my, I guess my moments weren't like, you know, looking back, they weren't any worse than some of the situations I put myself in when I was in my twenties. I, I went to, I went to my best friend's 40th and they rented this like big country house yeah. and, and um, it was supposed to be this lovely three day celebration in the sun in Devon and, <laughs> and, uh, and it ended with me um, and I, you know, I've written about this in my book. Of course book. it ended with you, uh, go on. <laughs> uh, it ended with me sort of coming to and there was a man um, basically doing something to me that I didn't really want them to do, but I didn't stop them from doing because they've been giving me cocaine all night. Yeah. While my husband and child sort of slept in the house. And that, you know, was awful. And then I, I mean, and then, but the thing was, was then about five days later, it was the August bank holiday weekend. And um, I had, gone out for like a couple of drinks got the babysitter da, 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 da. Or I can't, I wasn't or maybe it wasn't the babysitter it was another time but there was a yeah we'd gone out for I'd, I'd just gone out I'd gone out and told my husband like, you know it's just a couple of drinks and I'd I'd basically come back and there was he we were supposed to be going to see his dad and I had you know it was I'd, I'd spent the night basically drinking taking drugs with this person I wasn't even friends with really like I didn't even know their surname do you know what I mean but they were just like someone I could drink and drug with and you know it was like I just had to I had to accept that it was you know it, it, it was I just you know I had to accept I was an alcoholic I didn't it's like you said I didn't want to get like I didn't I didn't know I was done like I I was hollowed out with self-loathing and I knew that if I carried on I couldn't guarantee that I would survive it you know like I couldn't guarantee what was going to happen or what catastrophe I was going to slam myself into and you know I had this four-year-old daughter and I was like this just isn't I can't this just isn't what a mum should be doing you know this isn't what a human should be doing but it's certainly not and um I knew, I just knew I couldn't do it anymore. I, do, I just couldn't do it anymore. And I, I, I was like, I think I'm an alcoholic. And my husband was like, I think you are. And it's, and it was just such a relief to hear those. It was such a relief in the end. Like yeah. I spent my whole life trying to prove I wasn't an alcoholic, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And in the end, it was just easier to admit that I was. Like that is the surrender that people talk about, right? And it, yeah. I'm not, it wasn't like, and then I never wanted to drink again, you know, like, but. It's not that, you know, it, it's a process and it's a process of, of change. And, you know, when we use alcohol, we use drugs as such a strong crutch to, for, for so long. I used to call it chemical scaffolding because it's what held me together. That's yeah. what I survived. That's how I still was standing because it was like chemical scaffolding. Without it, I would have crumbled long before. Mm. You know, um, it, it's to take down that stuff, that scaffolding takes time. And it, it's not, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not a miracle of like something you wake up and the sun is shining and there's rabbits and blue, bluebirds floating around your head. No, there isn't. You know, it's about learning our self-worth again and learning who we are. Because I had no clue who I was. Yeah. I had a clue who I was meant to be. I had a clue who DJ Fat Tony was meant to be. Uh, um, but that was it. And, you know, uh, to, to forget or to try and change it, the persona that I've given myself and, you know, of being the biggest car crash in London and, and being that DJ and thinking, well, where do I cope? How do I come back from that? How do I get to that point of, of 
of knowing who I am again. It's, 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 it's a really daunting, 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 and I will say it again, daunting experience because you, you can't fathom it. Mm. It's so easy to go back to the things that we know and the comfort of alcohol and drugs than it is to find the new beginning because that's alien. But you know, by keeping it in the day and doing it in the hour, and I had to do it hour by hour, literally hour by hour, work out where I was and who, who I was with. And, and by having people around me that loved me for who I was and not what I did and who, what they could get from me and what I could give them was a really, really, was the basic of, of my recovery. It was that, you know, that was enough. That was enough, you know, yeah. and realizing that that's enough and not, you know, and slowly but surely you realize that's enough and suddenly you realize you're enough. Mm. You know what I mean? Over the matter of time and, you know, we get a week clean and we just think, oh my God, I want to change the world. <laughs> you know, I'm going to become a counselor a month. You know, all of that stuff, that process that we go through, it is crazy, you know, the, but it's, 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 it's so magical. Oh, I mean, I just, like, I feel quite emotional listening to you. Like, I can't, like, sometimes I have to sit and, and like, really, like, I feel like a baby in recovery terms. Like, I'll be four years this year. And, like... That's insane. But, like, when I heard... Uh, when I heard people... Like, I would go and I would hear people in meetings. And, they like, I'd go to newcomer meetings. And it was, like, go around the room and say uh, how many days, months sober you are. And if you're over a year, you just say over a year sober, right? And I used to sit there, like, shaking, you know. And here, and someone would say, I'm 31 days sober. And I'd be like, what the fuck? You know, and the people that were like over a year sober, I'd just be like, you you didn't have a problem. You, 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 you weren't as bad as us. Yeah, like, no way. I couldn't believe it. And now I'm like, sometimes I go to those newcomer meet, well, because I think it's really helpful to hear, but just so I can go, hi, my name's Bryony, I'm an alcoholic and I'm over a year sober. I used to sit there and I used to listen to people and they'd say, yeah, I'm 15 years and I, and I think, what drugs were you taking 15 years ago? There, there was no drugs back then. You know what I mean? Like, like you are almost 15 years. I am now, yeah, I know. But like, but like, I used to sit and fit, listen to those people, and they'd be like talking about thinking, what drugs were you taking back then? I mean, what marijuana? You don't know what it's like to be a junkie. And I used to literally think that they were never as bad as me, and all of that stuff that we build up. Do you know what I mean? And. And what that is, is what we're doing is building more walls. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're taking their infantry, we're not taking our own. And then yeah. we, can I mean, come, we can come into recovery, we can put down the drinks, and we can put down the drugs, and we can put down the behaviors. And then but unless we change, we start to work on ourselves, we, we, nothing changes. We're just, we're doing exactly what we do, but without the drink and drugs. You know, which is a much more painful place to be, I can assure you, that being a dry drunk than it is actually being a wet drunk. Because at least, you know, when you're wet, you know, you're... You're, you're, you're out Yeah, but, you know, being sober and be, not doing the work on yourself, it's just such a painful thing. I mean, I, you know, like I used to also go to meetings and like I would hear I, I just at the beginning all I wanted to hear was like war stories yeah. all I wanted to hear was war stories because I I needed to know that I was not the worst but that other people had done what I had done and of course it turns out that that that's just that there was nothing as you know you hear it said we're not special or different we're just a type of person who does it and um but now it's interesting because now I don't, I, I'm not that interested in war stories, but like, and I want to hear like proper recovery, you know, but I, you know, I realize I, I do feel like a baby, like I feel like I'm three and a half years old. Yeah. You know, that's what I feel like. And, and it's amazing. It's amazing to get to 40 years old and be like, I've got so much more to learn about life. Like, where yeah. the fuck am I going to be in five years? I mean, hopefully I'll be alive. Who knows what's going to happen? You'll be alive. You're a survivor. But we shouldn't, but I you know not to look for, not to be like spending my time living in the future or the past, but like, I feel excited about life and about what is to come. And it's, I guess it's that thing that we, we are taught in 12 step. It been like 10 years ago, thinking, being excited about life about drinking drugs and, and being, you know, not having to say 68 phrases a day just to feel normal. Well, this is the thing. The interesting thing was that obviously I had developed obsessive compulsive disorder long before I ever picked up a drink. 
but my obsessive compulsive disorder now since I've got sober and it's taken a lot of work but it is I would like I'll always think I'm it's like I'll always call myself an alcoholic I'll always call myself someone with OCD but what what the tips and tools of sobriety have given me is an ability to realize what my OCD is and it's just a really shit coping mechanism right and then and then alcohol was a shit coping mechanism to deal with the shit coping mechanism right and so I do think for a lot of people alcohol and addiction it's like a double whammy of mental illness you know so it's really hard to get through and but uh, what 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 I've learned is that my OCD was like my brain's way of trying to protect me and keep me safe when I was a little girl and it didn't work it made me feel less safe but our brain all of our brains and I talk about this a lot like our brains misfire like any other organ you know I don't hold that much with the kind of depressions and chemical imbalance da, 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 you know but I do think I think it's more complicated than that but I do think it helps us to think of mental illness and mental health in like those terms our brains are fantastically complex organs like the most complicated you know is a mystery one of the greatest mysteries of biology and they're one of the few organs you can't transplant yeah but I don't come here and and feel like a failure because I, I have to wear pretty strong contact lenses every day because I can't see and our brains are you know there's a fantastic book called um this book will change your mind about mental health by a guy called Nathan Filer and in it he talks about schizophrenia and the two most common known um uh symptoms of schizophrenia so we have you know you have paranoid delusions and delusions of grandeur and he talks back to when we evolved as humans on the African plains and what we what we had to do to keep ourselves safe from predators but also from rival tribes we had to be looking over our shoulders the whole time paranoid delusions and what would happen if you came up against a predator or a tribe you'd make yourself big yeah. delusions of grandeur right so a lot of mental illness is is like it's 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 a primal brain evolutionary instinct that's misfiring and has gone wrong but it doesn't make you a fucking freak like that's my thing it's like our treatment for alcoholism has enabled me like that peeling of the onion to learn more and more and more and more and more and meet more and more and more people and know understand it it's, and, you understand it more because you, yeah. you when we understand something you know the fear comes from not understanding so yeah. people that are homophobic or people that are racist or people they're, they're that way because they don't understand something so therefore they hate it it's, it's human nature to hate something that we don't understand but the more that we understand something the more that we we, we learn to live with it and we learn to 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 completely take the power out of that fear of it do you know what i'm saying it, it, it's remarkable but also i think you know that thing about fear is that the thing I've come to realize is that all mental, well, all mental health issues, and I, and I do believe alcoholism and addiction are a mental health issue. hundred percent, hundred. I'm totally on the same page as that. And what they, all of them, have in common, from depression, anxiety, to alcoholism, to um, eating disorders, to psychosis, and beyond is that they thrive in a culture of isolation, right? They're like abusers. They, they thrive in a culture of silence and they lie to you and they tell you you're a freak and they tell you you're alone and they tell you that no one is gonna understand what you're going through. Yeah. And that is quite frankly bullshit. Not only, right now, I don't know who's listening to this podcast or who will listen to it, but right now there's not, if you're in crisis, there's not just someone out there who understands what you're going through. There's someone out there who is going through what you're going through and the moment you get to realize that and understand the mechanisms of it is you're not on you're not instantly cured do you know what I mean but you are on the road to recovery and that is for me the most important thing to remember whenever I go into myself and you know and obviously at the moment that is something it's a real danger when I mean, we have literally state sanctioned isolation <laughs> stay in your homes you know and I understand that needs to be done but so we need to as much as possible. Connect. I started this podcast, The Recovery, because, you know, um, people are at home, people are, their worlds have got very small and they think that they're the only ones that are going through what they're going through and no one else would understand it. So what I wanted to do with this podcast was give people that identification of like, okay, you're not alone. We all do this. You're not a freak. 
you're certainly not mental in that sense. Do you know what I mean? And, you, you know, there are other people out there going through what you're going through. And I think that the more honest we are about what we've gone through, the more easier it is for other people to understand because we, we by putting it out and they're voicing it, will take the power out of it for someone else. Yeah. And I remember going to my psychiatrist really early on to try, when I was trying to get into rehab and they did like, a, you know, I had to go and get uh, assessed and stuff. And I remember being at the assessment and the psychiatrist saying, uh, have you ever had any mental health? And I remember saying, no. And have you ever self-harmed? And I was like, no. And my partner was sitting next to me and my partner was like, you pulled all your teeth out with a screwdriver. And I was like, yeah, but that wasn't, that wasn't self-harming. And I just couldn't understand the fact that I didn't believe that was self-harm. And I'm sitting there saying, no, I had no, no sense of mental health. I was absolutely insane for years, you know, rocking backwards and forwards to calm my nerves, like literally like this, for hours thinking that that would bring me down. I'd like just, you know, uh, but you know, and it wasn't until later on that I had the identification from somebody else that I realized, wow, you really were in a dark place without thinking about it. And truth, because you know, for me, I would always glamorize everything. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and thinking that by laughing it off or thinking, like, you know, took the power out of it. But what it was doing was it was just not dealing with it. And by well, it was giving it power really, wasn't it? Exactly. And, and then when with this podcast, with the recovery, having people like yourself come on will help so many people because they get that identification. They think, oh my God, I do that. Oh my God, I've gone through that. I didn't yeah. know she did that or he said that. You see what I'm saying to you? Yeah. Right now it's more important than ever. In, with what's going on in the world, the people like, you know, losing loved ones, losing jobs, losing their lives, losing their freedom as they, as they like to think they have, you know, um, and not realizing what they've got instead of thinking about what they haven't got. It's so important for people like you to, to, to open your mouth and tell, tell people it's so important, Bryony. I'm so blessed that you've come on here. I really oh, I'm so I'm so grateful that you've asked, you know, you've let me come on. And I, you know, it's been a really nice. I feel like I could, I feel like I'm like, oh, could we just carry on chatting for the rest of the day? <laughs> Thank you. I love you. I love you too. And I'm really glad that you did this and and voice voice because it's so important.